Welcome to Energy in 30. We'll use the next 30 minutes to explore how utilities in the industry are reacting to forces that are shaping new offerings for customers in order to meet decarbonization goals. If you're a utility manager, consultant, technology provider, or just curious about energy, we hope to push your thinking about the changes that are happening in the energy industry with me, David Meisegeier, and me, Joan Collins. So, Joan, what's new with you this week? Oh, you know, David, I was over at my mom's this weekend and I was helping her go through some paperwork and she was so cute. She brought to my attention her utility bill and that there was a report attached that was showing that she was using 13% less than others in her neighborhood. <laughs> she was so excited and um She's so funny. She she attributed it to having a daughter in the industry who educates her and <laughs> makes her aware. <laughs> and, and, um, and nudges her thermostat down. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I think it, what it did was it really hammered home for me the importance of the human dimension of energy use and how important it is to educate and socialize, um, you know, what we do, behavioral changes and the difference that they can make. So I thought that was a really fun interaction that I had with her. Well, I have uh, a somewhat embarrassing uh, story to tell, and that is our washer died last week. Oh, no. And uh, yeah, and so we uh, started doing research uh, for new washers with uh, consumer reports and then calling some stores and turned out there was only one store that had anything in stock uh, and we didn't want to wait for months to to get a new washer <laughs> so we uh we placed the order and it got delivered today but you know what i never once thought gee i wonder if my utility offers any rebates for energy efficient washers and dryers so, oh no i mean this is what you do <laughs> i know and uh and I, it just goes to show you that uh I'm as human as everybody else, and uh, unfortunately, energy efficiency isn't always on top of mind. But uh, I plan to go visit my utility's website to see if there are any rebates available. So uh, hopefully, yeah, good, yeah. Usually, they give you some time to to work that out. So, well, at least you you're going to have some clean laundry here. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> yes, thank goodness for that. All right, well, I guess we'll get on with it here. You know, David, the topic of the regulatory environment keeps coming up. And so I reach out to my friend Cameron Brooks, who's the president of E9 Insights, to see if he'd come on our podcast. And guess what? He said yes. Yay! <laughs> uh, I worked with Cameron at a high-tech company in Boulder about 10 years ago. I can't believe it's been that long. And he really is a go-to for regulatory and policy insights. Uh, Cameron has about two decades of experience working with public policy, capital markets, and electricity regulation. And he's just back from hiking the Grand Canyon here in Arizona with his family after attending NARUC, um, which was a policy summit last month. So Cameron, welcome. Well, thank you. It's great, great to be here. We're so, so excited to dig into this with you. But before we do, we'd love to hear how the canyon was. Uh, the canyon is fantastic. I mean, I suppose it's not called the Grand Canyon for no reason. Uh, 
So yeah, we had a wonderful time and it's great just to drop below the rim there and know that even if you want to, uh, you, you can't connect to anything there. So it's nice to just be offline for a little bit. And, and uh, we enjoyed camping underneath the canyon walls and down by the river. Mm, which uh, which trail was it, Cameron? Well, we went down the Kaibab Trail and sort of followed along the Tonto Trail that parallels the river and then came back up the Hermit Trail after okay. four or five days. Wow. Yeah, it was, that a, was a, a really big outing. That sounds fantastic, especially the unplugged part. Yeah, that, that part is just there's there's no really no way to replace that, but it's so vital. So tell us a little bit about Nehru. Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, sort of all having the, the opening discussion there about, you know, our human nature. I mean, I will say that one of the things that gives me hope going to to a conference like Nehruk, and just for those who don't know, Nehruk is the National uh, Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners. It's a mouthful, but it's essentially the quasi-trade association for all of the state utility commissions and commissioners. Um, and, and one of the things that I really enjoy about it is that you actually have a chance to interact with people as people. And so, like I said, it's, it's one of the things that gives me hope, which, you know, sometimes the regulatory world can feel like a real morass. But um, the fact that, you know, most of the people are very approachable. And my sense is most people, they, they really want to do the right thing and, and that we generally have more in common than we disagree on. Um, so, so I kind of come away from that, you know, with some sense of like, oh, well, maybe there's ways to actually convince people uh, or help, you know, identify what the problems are and kind of work on it together. You know, I think it was Paul Demartini in one of your earlier uh, episodes who talked about, you know, one of the real limitations of the regulatory process is that it becomes very adjudicated. You present both sides and you have to build a record and can only make decisions based on what's there. And it doesn't really allow for kind of the broader design thinking that we might want to, you know, deal with some of the urgent problems that we have. Um, so, so I come away with a little bit of hope having been there. You know, that's, I'm glad to hear that there's some hope. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm curious how how can we help regulators keep up really with the pace of change that's happening on the consumer side of the of the meter. It it seems what the consumers are doing seems to be leapfrogging what the regulators are doing and, and it seems to be throwing things out of sync. How, do, how can we help them stay, stay up with that? You know, it, it's a great question. And again, I, I wish that there was sort of just one simple answer um, because, you know, it is true that in many situations, the regulators and regulatory commissions, they are kind of bound by some very prescriptive rules and processes um, and and it makes it hard to kind of step back and look at something from the bigger picture because it it can get very narrow very quickly you know having said that i would say that you know one of the things that we do at e9 insight 
is we're really trying to make that public record more relevant and and that can kind of come in a few different forms so you know one way is that we we help regulators and other government officials understand what their peers are doing so just being able to see what's happening in other states you know like all of us probably they kind of put their heads down and and they're dealing with what's in front of them and it's hard to lift up and kind of take a look around so we try to do that for them to give sort of a 50 state perspective on what's happening what are best practices you know the other other way is really to get people more engaged so we try to support constructive engagement in policy proceedings and other initiatives and and that obviously translates for businesses and other organizations in terms of thinking about what what's the best business development or deployment strategy I mean, I will say most regulators are, they're coming from some other profession. You know, not no one that I know sort of checks all the boxes uh, in their career office and decides that they want to go be a public utility commissioner. Um, it's usually the result of either a long career in the industry or in law or in academia or in advocacy. And so the result of that is that most of them are actually very hungry to learn because they they do recognize that you know things are changing quickly and and it's not always going to be the way it has been and and they want to be looking forward so quite honestly i think there's a lot of opportunity to to do that kind of education and outreach just to share not necessarily with a strong advocacy bent you know you don't need to go in and say this is the way it should be but just to talk about What's, what are companies' different market experiences? What's happening in one state that could be happening in another state? Um, things like that. There, there is a, a lot of appetite out there, I think, to just lift up the hood a little bit and look underneath and try to understand what's going on. That said, though, David, I don't know the answer to how you keep up because things are happening pretty quickly. Do you feel like, Cameron, when you're having those discussions that is there this because I always I kind of always feel like what you said like sometimes <clears throat> it's a morass and that regulators um, or policymakers it, it's it's a big responsibility for them to come up with you know or keep up with I guess the pace um, and I just am curious like do they recognize that 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 impression is out there or care well you know like everything, it probably comes down to who those people are and and what yeah. their priorities are. I mean, again, you know, for, for the most part, I'm a generally pessimistic person. People tend to disappoint me uh, more often yeah. than not. That said, I, I am consistently struck by even if, you know, I might have a different opinion from somebody um, most of the people who are attending Nehruk or who are involved, you know, are very passionate and genuinely believe and and want to learn and want to kind of get it right. I think the the consequential nature of the decisions that they have to make um, that you sort of touched on there, Joan. I mean, the decisions have you know huge implications potentially that last for decades, and I think that's I think that's not taken lightly by most people. So you know. That might not always lead to the right outcome. And I suppose depending on the person, you know, that might mean that some people think they should, you know, 
charge ahead boldly and others might say, well, this is really important. I need to sit back and sort of sharpen my pencil and look at all of it. So that just kind of gets down to different people's personal style. And I'll say to some degree, you know, each of the state commissions has their own culture and personality, if you will. Um, so it can vary from state to state. So, you know, I, I read the the vision papers that you launched at NARU, the state assessment and think microgrid climate and vision report. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned in there, it, which just floored me, is that the grid quality in the U.S. is ranked at 23rd, which is below countries in, in Asia and Europe, the Middle East, and even South America. And in that in 2020, the U.S. experienced 1.3% billion outage hours, which just blew me away. So, I mean, it seems like not not only do we need the regulators just to keep up with the, the pace that customers are moving ahead, you know, putting solar and storage uh, on their homes and in their houses, businesses, but but wow, just just pure grid quality itself seems to be struggling. How, again, I'll go back to the pace, you know, like how it seems like we need to pick up the pace and that the regulators have to be a key in 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 picking up that pace. Yeah, I mean, well, you're absolutely right. So, I mean, the, the paper that you're referring to, some of the work that we do is we helped create and now staff and uh, an organization, a coalition called Think Microgrid that's really focused on trying to highlight the role that microgrids can play, especially around resilience. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people, you go to any conference and of course you'll hear sort of quotes about what an engineering marvel the electric grid is. And there's no doubt that that's true. I mean, there's, you know, millions of endpoints and all kinds of resources that are being balanced. But the fact of the matter is it's also very, very brittle. And so, you know, whether it's a storm or a squirrel, um, local disruptions can cascade or take out huge swaths of cities and service areas. It strikes me as, as odd how we've become so accustomed to that, that we just sort of seem to accept it with a collective shrug and say, well, you know, what are you gonna do? We, you know, this city lost power for days or millions of, that's like, well, when did that become acceptable as a service quality level? Right. Um, so, and there's a there's a lot of focus on, I would say, hardening the grid. There's not as much focus on making the grid more resilient, flexible, supple. I mean, unfortunately, I think, well, maybe not unfortunately, I think it kind of touches on, I mean, going back to Nehru, there there are sort of some certain what I think of as fault lines that kind of run through the industry around distributed energy versus more centralized solutions or private capital being invested into energy technology versus ratepayer capital. Honestly, you know, customer autonomy versus utility kind of command and control models. That the history of the industry tends to lean towards more some of the things that we're familiar with, 
more of the centralized systems, big infrastructure. And, um, you know, we haven't necessarily figured out the best models for how to incorporate um, the, these other uh, solutions that might not be obvious and intuitive from a central planning or a utility business model, the way it's been developed over the last you know, century, but that I think are just absolutely critical going forward. You know, I'll say being a native of California, I don't use the term fault line uh, without some trepidation or use it loosely. Uh, I, and I'll, I'll just expand on that for a minute because I do often think about the regulatory world as being somewhat tectonic. A lot of people translate as meaning that it's really slow, and that can certainly be true. You know, Jim Rogers, former CEO of, of Duke, used to sell a joke that I heard him offer a couple of times about a group of despondent utility CEOs who decided things just, they couldn't make it work. Regulators were too much and the EPA was coming down on them. So they decided to give it up and they were gonna do a mass suicide and they went out and lay down in front of a glacier. <laughs> so, but uh, but I use it a little differently because it's true that tectonic uh, changes, when you look at them over a, a longer time span, are very very slow. But the fact is, when that pressure builds up, when it does shift, it shifts very quickly and it shifts irreversibly. So those those plates move, and suddenly we're in a new paradigm. I feel like those pressures are building up around some of those things. And so distributed energy, microgrids, customer-sided solutions, where, as you point out, a lot of the innovation is happening. I think there is a lot of good pressure that's building there that is going to force some changes. Um, now, of course, you know, it gets into a question of timing because that change could come in five months or five years or 15 years. And the difference for us in our lifetime is is very significant across all of those, but um, but yeah, there there is a a lot of attention that I think is going to be going into this question of what does a resilient grid look like, not just a reliable grid, and can we serve most of the people most of the time, but how do we deal with you know these un unfortunate not always common, but not unpredictable events like big storms coming in up the Gulf Coast or, you know, heat waves or wildfires. So education certainly plays a role in all of this, educating regulators. But what about advocacy, lobbying? Maybe those are just different forms of education. But I think back to the early O power days and and how they bypassed utilities and went, went right to regulators and, and all of a sudden every every utility was being told to do a home energy report program which which made the the regulation side move very quickly <laughs> uh what's the role of all those different channels i guess yeah, well, you know, I mean, at many levels, public policy is definitely more art than science. I mean, there isn't necessarily one right answer. And and that's something, again, that just goes back to that, that human component. Um, you know, there are a lot of decisions that need to be made. And there, 
and there's there's not always just one right formula that says, well, well, this is how we all agree uh, is is the right way to do it. I mean, uh, just to use a very small example, you know, if, if I build a home up in the up in the mountains, I can generally expect that the utility is going to run power lines up to where my property is so that I can connect and that those costs are sort of taken to be just costs of operating the system. You know, if on the other hand, I want to run a commercial facility that's much closer, um, a lot of those costs are not necessarily borne by everybody. There might be a charge that's applied to my specific facility. Those, there's not one right answer to that. Those are essentially social decisions that we're making. So the conversation that you allude to, which I kind of think of as between you know, the legislature, the executive branch, the regulatory agencies in any given state or jurisdiction, um, you know, th there is a conversation that happens. And so the legislature might step forward. Uh, and here in Colorado, there's a proposal being floated around for uh, a bill that would study where microgrids can, um, can provide power for critical facilities. So even just laying down that marker to say this is a priority for us, I think sends a signal onto the regulatory side of, well, we should be looking at this and we should think be thinking about goals that maybe extend just beyond our, our immediate purview. I, I wish that there were one simple answer, David, but you know, it really does strike me that there is sort of this constructive tension that exists between the different agencies, the different authorities in government, um, and you know, we sort of push and pull our way along. But it does seem to, um, it does seem to move towards new policies, new programs. I'll also say that I think there's an an element that just sort of what exists is irrefutable. And so once one place is able to pick up on the microgrid example again. You know, in, during during the Texas blackouts uh, of a year or so ago, you know, there were private businesses that became hubs for local communities because things like grocery stores had decided we're going to invest in microgrids because we know what the value of lost inventory is if we lose power. Um, and so, you know, those were places where the lights stayed on during those moments. And that became a very clear marker for those people who drove to those stores to use Wi-Fi or to be able to, you know, have charge their phones and have access that, you know, this is not impossible. These things exist. We can have power during these, um, you know, big disruptive events. And just that begins to raise, just have to be thoughtful. And it kind of raises questions of, well, you know, then how do we plan for that as opposed to just, you know, thinking that there's nothing we can do and going back to that idea of sort of the collective shrug. Um, right. We shouldn't be shrugging. We, we should be angry and, and you know, energized that, uh, that it doesn't have to be this way. We haven't even talked about electrification and its impact. Yeah, and I mean, there, there's a lot of questions there. Again, you know, I, I sort of raised that example of there's not necessarily one right answer. We've been spending a lot of time looking at electrification, especially around fast charging applications along 
highway corridors and in urban centers. You know, it's one thing if you have a home and you can plug your car in and you can charge, but for many moments of the day, uh, like for example, when my family was driving down to the Grand Canyon, you know, we we would have needed, we didn't have an electric vehicle that we took, um, but we would have needed to know where we can stop and charge conveniently and not need to spend the night. Um, now there's there right now a lot of those those uh, charging facilities are really hampered by rate design that didn't anticipate electric vehicles and electrification. So there's demand charges that were designed for sort of a different application, but they unfortunately are kind of crude instruments that don't accurately reflect always the real costs of providing service. So they can grossly inflate the charges that are being put on those kinds of applications. Those are things where I think, you know, there's there's a combination of education as to, you know, how those demand rates got put in place in the first place, what was the purpose they were trying to serve, but then also some real advocacy to participate in the rate making process in front of a commission or in front of a ALJ um, to say, you know, this needs to be changed. Here's the arguments why this is the proposal for how it should be changed. So it kind of has to be both. Cameron, there's so much that we could dig into. I can't believe we're already getting here towards the end. So I have to ask you the big question that we try to ask on every one of these, and that's if you could change one thing in the industry, no limits, what would you do? <laughs> Boy, that is, a, that is a big question. You know, and I guess I'll say sort of backing up, I mean, I, I really come at this or I, I got into this industry because of an interest around climate change and environmental protection. And so that is definitely something that, you know, really drives me. So I, I kind of have two answers, I suppose. I mean, one is a real big vision and one's a little bit more nerdy and immediate. Um, the bigger vision, I really would like to go back to that question of kind of design thinking that's hard to do in the you know adjudicated process of this or that proceeding. I would love for our power grid to be designed around the flows of energy, mm -hmm. wind and solar, rather than around the stores of energy, which is really what we have today of, you know, either burning certain fuels or capturing certain fuels. The more immediate step to, to work towards that, in my view, would be, uh, and this, this is the part that maybe gets a little bit wonky, but I would say I want to have open access uh, to the distribution grid in the same way that we have open access to the transmission grid. And what I mean by that is on the transmission grid, if I own a power facility, I can sell my power to that factory over there or to that data center and and pay a fair rate to transport the electricity across the trans the transmission grid. We don't have that kind of open access model for the distribution system, and I think that we should. So I think that we should be able to have a community-owned storage facility or solar facility that would allow uh, microgrids to disconnect and serve a, a small load, uh, whether it's, you know, a 911 call center and a hospital or a group of homes. 
So that's a that's one piece of that is I suppose a commercial rule that needs to change around the open access to the distribution system. But there's also a physical element which would be to lift restrictions on being able to run power lines from one across a property line, which exists in almost every state. I love I love the thought open access to distribution systems. Why not? I mean, it would it would open up so much creativity and and accelerate things probably closer to the pace that we need them to be happening at. I certainly think so. I mean, there's a lot of discussion. You usually those discussions come in the form of a of a conversation around what a distribution system operator model would look like. You know, the same way that we have an independent system operator in a lot of the wholesale markets. There's a lot of discussion around it, but no one has actually moved to implement it. So that would be my big change. I like it. And you've you've left us with a lot to think about, which is always a good thing. So thank you so much, Cameron, for joining us today. Yes, really appreciate it. A lot of meaty stuff to dig into. So thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure, and it's great to reconnect and and happy to be part of this new series. I've really enjoyed what I've heard so far. Oh, thanks, Cameron. And if anybody wants to um, learn more about E9 or any of the papers that we talked about, they can go to your website. Sure. E9insight.com and, and the coalition that I mentioned is at thinkmicrogrid.org. Great. Okay, well, that's a wrap, everybody. If you've enjoyed listening to Energy in 30, please subscribe, share, rate the show, and review our podcast if you can. I have to say, I've been pretty surprised with all the optimism that we keep hearing from our guests. Let's hope that continues as we delve into other interesting areas like equitable energy engagement, flexible load management, and electrification. I couldn't agree more, David. Here's to our next Energy in 30. Bye.